Hello, everybody. It's Nora McInerney. This is not quite terrible. Thanks for asking. This is an episode of a podcast made by a listener of Terrible Thanks for Asking, who then became a guest on Terrible Thanks for Asking. You heard her and her story on our episode Behind the Scammer. Her name is Celicia Stanton. And about one year ago, she lost all of her savings to her financial advisor. Apparently, there's nothing like being the victim of a crime to really make you think through the way that you consume crime entertainment. But Celicia wanted to approach the genre from a different angle, skipping over all of the sensationalism that centers the criminal themselves and to focus on a more nuanced look, not just on the crime that occurred, but on the systems that surround every crime. She calls her podcast Truer Crime, which I think is absolutely brilliant. The episode that you are about to hear is one of her favorites, one of our favorites. If you like it, and we hope you do, please go listen to Truer Crime wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, friends. Before we jump into today's episode, I have a quick ask for you. If you like Truer Crime and believe in our work, please pause this episode and take a few minutes to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I really can't stress enough how much each and every rating and written review helps us turn this passion project into something really sustainable. And tell your friends, we really believe in the importance of these stories, and we hope that you do too. We're a small team, so whatever you can do to help us get the word out about True Crime is immensely helpful. You can share on your Instagram stories, you can subscribe on any podcast player that you listen to podcasts on, and specifically, if you could leave an iTunes or Apple Podcast review, that's the best way. For today's episode, I want to give you a warning that this story contains references to suicide and mass death. Please take care while listening. Recently, I was reading an article from October of 1977 that had been scanned and uploaded to the internet. As I read, it struck me that I've never really been the magazine type. Well, at least not of the printed variety. Trashy gossip mags aside, obviously. But I'd figured that probably didn't make me all that unique. We're well into the digital age, and all my news is quite literally a tap away. Things have changed a lot since 1977. But... Had I not been a 90s baby, I'd like to think I would have been the printed news type. The type to have magazine subscriptions to publications like New York Mag or Time. There's nothing quite like flipping through the pages of a printed magazine, you know? It's hard not to be drawn in by the catchy headlines and glossy pages. And as a photographer myself, I know digital images never do justice to actual prints. Maybe if I'd been born during the golden age of print, I would have had a subscription to the magazine I was currently reading. New York Mag's short-lived sister magazine, The New West. Maybe I would have just walked into a store in October of 1977 and plucked it off the shelf. But I was daydreaming now. None of that had happened. I hadn't even been an idea in October of 1977. My mom, for her part, was barely four years old. And so instead, I was reading this article on a dirty iPhone screen in 2021 with all the advantages of hindsight. The headline of the piece is written in bold, blocky font. It reads, Inside the People's Temple. The byline lists two authors, Marshall Kilduff and Phil Tracy. The People's Temple is a religious community, and a man named Reverend Jim Jones is their leader. The piece starts out flatteringly, highlighting the diversity of the congregation. 
old ladies on crutches, whole families, little kids, blacks, whites, and the numerous social justice initiatives pursued by the group. Temple members support and staff a free diagnostic clinic, a physical therapy facility, a drug program, a legal aid program. The Temple's free dining hall is said to feed more than the city's program, all without a cent of government money. To many, the authors write, the Temple's leader, Reverend Jim Jones, is the epitome of a selfless Christian. But the flattery doesn't last long, because this article is actually the result of months of investigation. It's not a piece on the triumphs of the People's Temple. It's an expose. Ten individuals, all former members of People's Temple, ready to speak publicly on their experiences. And the revelations were sickening. Accusations of manipulation, public humiliation, and abuse. All at the hands of Reverend Jim Jones. Hours before the article's publication, Jim Jones would leave the U.S. and head to a small South American country named Guyana. Hundreds of People's Temple members who had been preparing to make the journey to South America for months would join him. And then, just over a year later, nearly all of them would be dead. But how could this happen? It's a question we'll explore today. Because this is the story of Jonestown. I'm Celestia Stanton, and you're listening to Truer Crime. ever Jonestown, before Guyana and California ever heard of People's Temple, there was Indiana. Because Indiana is where James Jones was born in 1931. James would go by Jim, Jimmy as a little kid. And according to a PBS documentary called Jonestown, The Life and Death of the People's Temple, Jim Jones grew up poor. Folks who knew him then thought he had some odd qualities as a child. It's hard to know what memories get colored with hindsight, but the documentary from PBS referenced that Jones was a kid obsessed with death and religion. Some would even say he studied Hitler and Stalin. But what stands out to me more than his childhood interests is how he himself described his upbringing's influence on his beliefs about the world. Thus, I acted out against the conformities in the community. First way, because I was never accepted. I didn't feel accepted. I joined a Pentecostal church, the most extreme Pentecostal church, the Oneness, because they were the most despised. They were the rejects of the community. But after some time, intellectually I outgrew Pentecostalism, but still a rebel, still not a part of the society never accepted, born, as it were, on the wrong side of the tracks. In this outcast status, these feelings of rejection, well, Jim Jones said it gave him empathy for others. And I'd early developed a sensitivity for the problems of blacks, too probably feeling as an outcast. I left my father's home early and had to go to work and live away from the home because I brought the only black young man in the town home to my to visit my dad and to visit my home 
and my dad said that he could not come in. I said, then I shan't, and I did not see my dad for many years or for some, some time thereafter. Pursuing justice and racial equity, Jim Jones would say throughout the years that these commitments guided him. And having found a sense of community in the church, Jones pursued a career as a preacher, eventually deciding to start his own church, People's Temple. And of course, in line with Jones' beliefs, People's Temple would be an interracial church. Only problem was, this was the 1950s, and segregation was more than the norm. It was the expectation. Many white folks took issue with Jones and his integrated church. They didn't like his talk of racial equality and the need for social services to help society's most vulnerable. But for all those who were angry and all those who spewed racist hate and vitriol, there were still a number of people right from the beginning who were intrigued by what Jones was preaching. Namely, those most impacted by oppression. Black folks, poor folks, disabled folks. And for his part, Jim Jones knew exactly how to draw these people in. In his time in the church, he'd observed how certain things drew in people and money. And in my research, I came across a Flickr account managed by the Jonestown Institute, which contained dozens of scanned news clippings. One in particular caught my eye. The scan shows a small black and white ad with a bolded title that reads, People's Temple Interracial Interdenominational. As I scanned the small text underneath, two items stuck out. Two free fellowship meals, 12 noon and 5 p.m., and another which read, Miracle Healing Service, 2.30 p.m. A call for racial progress, food for the hungry, and a promise to heal the sick. It struck me that wealthy white folks were probably not the advertisement's intended audience. But advertisements in the newspaper weren't the only way Jones would demonstrate his claimed values. Jonestown scholar Mary Maga would tell ABC News reporters Laura Efron and Monica De La Rosa that Jim Jones and his wife Marceline, quote, wished both in their church leadership life and in their personal life to show that all people are equal under God. And they would do that through adoption, calling themselves the Rainbow Family. Jim and Marceline would be the first white family in Indiana to adopt a black child. They'd also adopt children who are Korean-American and Native American. And through the programs, the ads, and Jones' personal life, they created a community that, for some, felt welcoming and safe. But by 1965, according to a timeline of events put together by the Modesto Bee, Jim Jones had made the decision to move People's Temple out of Indianapolis to Ukiah, California. Interestingly, he and a group of about 70 congregants made the journey in the hopes of surviving a nuclear war, according to the Jonestown Institute. And while the thought of moving cross-country to avoid nuclear war may strike you as unbelievable in 2021, it was likely much less so in 1965. It was actually after Jones happened across a 1962 article in Esquire magazine that discussed the best places to survive a nuclear disaster that he first heard of Ukiah, California. And it was here that the membership of People's Temple really started to grow. According to the PBS documentary I cited earlier, Jim Jones may have been a white man, but People's Temple was a black church. But I thought, like, how could that happen? A black church with a white leader? Juvenile Smart, a former member, would say of Jones, he wasn't white. He was just their preacher. And Jones, to say he rolled with it would be a massive understatement. According to Fielding M. McGee III of the Jonestown Institute, despite the fact that Jim Jones was unquestionably white, he'd often describe himself as Black, Native American in speeches and sermons, even referring to himself as an N-word in a speech in 1976. 
Here he is giving a sermon on another occasion in 1977. We who are black, we have seven times more blood pressure problems. Six times more likelihood of getting heart disease. Four times more likelihood of getting cancer. I wonder why. The more I researched, the more I wondered if the truth was less that Jones saw himself as black or native, and more that he saw himself as white savior. My father was a Ku Klux Klan bandit. But I'm the greatest humanitarian, the greatest savior, unfortunately, the greatest savior that this universe has ever known. But here's the thing. As I researched People's Temple, there was one thing that felt abundantly clear to me. For all of Jim Jones's egoism and manipulation, the members of People's Temple weren't mindless, contrary to what public perception would say years later. Looking back from the future is an interesting thing, isn't it? It enables us with the power to say we'd correct every wrong, stop every injustice, of course, act differently, if only it had happened to us. And these claims, they're really the worst kind, because they're completely unprovable. Looking down on the actions of other people without a full understanding of the context under which those decisions were made is easy, a lazy way for us to feel good about ourselves. Anyone who's ever been on Twitter can tell you that. But... As I learned the context of People's Temple, the actions of Jim Jones's followers, they made a lot of sense to me. For Black folks and others who believed in the need for a better society, this time in history, it marked a period of intense hopelessness. As Rebecca Moore would write for The Conversation, the 1970s was, quote, an era that witnessed the collapse of the civil rights movement, the decimation of the Black Panther Party, the assassinations of Black activists. But as Reverend Arnold Townsend would say in a speech quoted in San Francisco Bay News, here was someone who was talking about changing the conditions of people. Jones had a revolutionary message, and he brought it to oppressed people. Here's Jones speaking in 1973. That's why I hate those who have riches. I don't hate them because of their being a human being. It's because of their what they stand for. They're killing the world. They're choking the air. They're choking the streets. The love of money. These car companies that won't, well, they won't make a good carburetor. You can get, you get a carburetor. It was patented in the 1920s that will give you 70 miles to the gallon. But the oil industries, the great big oil industries and the motor industries didn't want to go along with it. So that patent was bought off by rich people. Now our airs are choked. We're killing ourselves. Our streams, our land is polluted. Everything is being destroyed by the love of money, capitalism. That's why we say we're socialists and our enemy, the devil, is capitalism. And the love of money is a thing that's inundating this world with pain. That's what causes violence. That's why youngsters are robbing people on the streets. Because everyone thinks of themselves as alone against the world. Everyone thinks, I've got to make my own. No one teaches that we help or bear one another's burdens. So every child feels like he's got to steal his way through. So everybody's turned against each other. That's why black are against black. Because we're taught to be against each other. The rich wants us to fight amongst themselves so the rich can stand off and laugh and drain us dry and use us to be their work slaves. For many, People's Temple was synonymous with hope. So when Jim Jones made the potentially calculated decision to expand his base further by moving the church to the much more diverse cities of San Francisco and L.A. in the early 1970s, well... At that point, the popularity of People's Temple skyrocketed, with its membership swelling to an estimated 20,000, according to the New West. And the truth was, the mission of the congregation wasn't limited to words and sermons. They took action, too. A lot of it. 
Sakivu Hutchinson would write for Black Perspectives that People's Temple organized around affirmative action, affordable housing, police brutality. My research led me to reading about long-running meal programs, drug rehabilitation, and legal services, all free. Rebecca Moore would write that members and non-members would receive a variety of free social services, rental assistance, funds for shopping trips, health exams, and student scholarships. By pooling resources, members received more in goods and services than they might have earned on their own. They called it apostolic socialism. And all of this, it was just the tip of the iceberg. The number of programs and social services run by People's Temple seemed astronomical. The folks drawn to People's Temple were idealistic and hopeful for a better and safer society. It was certainly no coincidence that those drawn to the work were overwhelmingly those facing oppression and exclusion. And then, in 1973, Jim Jones had a new idea he pitched to People's Temple members. What if they could live in a community free from the perils of American society? Free from racism? A utopia of sorts. A utopia eventually referred to simply as Jonestown. But in order to create this new society, they need a plot of land to settle on. And according to Jonestown Institute, with a lot of factors to weigh, they'd eventually settled on a small nation in South America. Guyana because it was, quote, an English-speaking country in the Western Hemisphere with a large Black population and, at the time, a socialist government. And this idea was pretty appealing to People's Temple members. Writer Brenton Mock would say in a piece for Bloomberg that the Jonestown site in Guyana was supposed to serve as a campus to which Black people and other races could flock to escape the racial discord engulfing U.S. cities in the 1970s. So over the next several years, a group of early Jonestown pioneers headed to Guyana to begin carving Jonestown from the thick jungle that sat on the purchased land. Meanwhile, in the States, truths would start to spill out about People's Temple. And the floodgates would open with an article published in New West magazine, Inside the People's Temple. The piece, written by Marshall Kilduff and Phil Tracy after months of investigation, highlighted the stories of 10 ex-members of People's Temple. And what they shared was deeply disturbing. The ex-members talked about church meetings called catharsis, where individual people were called to the floor to be criticized and berated by their peers. The New West reported that this criticism eventually escalated to beatings with paddles. Occasionally, Jim Jones would even pick folks to fight the person on the floor in a boxing match. Another ex-member said that unless you agreed to turn over your money and property to the church, you risked being targeted at the next catharsis session. Other former members talked about similar gatherings called family meetings where folks would line up and get hit as punishment for any minor thing Jones took issue with. Things like not paying enough attention during sermon. The articles also noted that Jim Jones kept doing phony healing sessions, just like he had back in Indiana. Sometimes Jones would just claim to have healed a sick congregant of their illness, and other times he'd have members of his leadership team pose as sick and have them act like they'd been restored and rejuvenated. In one particularly horrifying account, former member Laura Cornelius talked about money and the pressure to give, give, give. Cornelius told reporters that Jones claimed the money was needed to, quote, build up Guyana, the promised land, so we would have some place to go whenever they, the fascists in this country, were going to destroy us like they did the Jews. Jones said that they would put Black people in concentration camps and that they would do us like the Jews in the gas ovens. According to the PBS documentary Jonestown, The Life and Death of People's Temple, this looming expose from New West magazine pushed up the timetable for Guyana. 
Jones, who had been preparing for months to make the journey abroad, got wind of the article before publication and was on a flight to Guyana six hours before the magazine issue would hit shelves. It was this catalyst that set in motion a massive migration to Jonestown. The original plan had been for members to travel in small groups of 50 or 100 over the course of many months. But now, a mass exodus of nearly 1,000 people were heading to Guyana, all at the same time, according to the Jonestown Institute. With so many folks now at the Jonestown site, this is where things start to become a lot less clear-cut for those of us who weren't there. And that's because life in Jonestown gets described pretty differently depending on who you ask. As great as it would be to tie things up in a neat bow and say, this was the reality of Jonestown for all who lived there, the truth is a bit messier. And everyone's experience was uniquely theirs. That said, there are a number of things we do know. Jonestown existed in near total isolation. Surrounded by miles of jungle, it was extremely difficult to travel to. But when you did arrive, you would have been quite impressed. Mike Touchette was one of the original folks who assisted in building the site. And in a later essay titled A Place Like No Other, Jonestown's Early Years, he would write that, quote, The first time I saw the Jonestown site, it was nothing more than a footpath in the jungle. And in just over three years, a small group of 50 Americans and around 200 Guyanese built a small farming community. From pure raw jungle emerged 1,500 acres under cultivation. And while the location made the site impressive, it also proved perilous. This was long before the days of smartphones and Twitter and the Daily with Michael Barbaro. So the remoteness of Jonestown meant that Jim Jones had complete control over any and all information that made its way inside. And Jones grew more and more paranoid in the months after he moved to Guyana. According to PBS, he'd tell members again and again that conditions in the United States were worsening, that they couldn't leave, and that dark forces would eventually arrive to attack them. The community faced other challenges, too. Namely, the fact that keeping Jonestown up and running was a lot of work. In a YouTube miniseries from Anansi Mines called No Church in the Wild, former member Leslie Wagner Wilson would say that the work was Monday through Saturday, with one day, Sunday, off for rest. But the reality that the work would be long and hard, that wasn't necessarily a surprise to many members. They were trying to build an entirely new society. The deeper I dove, though, what alarmed me more than the amount of work was just how that work was divided up. According to a demographic study by Professor Rebecca Moore, as had been the case in the States, the majority of People's Temple members living in Guyana were Black, nearly 70%, in fact. This fraction holds true for those who did fieldwork. 70% of Jonestown's field workers were Black. And yet, as Moore would write, although Black people made up close to three-quarters of the population, they accounted for less than 10% of leadership in 1977. Leslie Wagner Wilson describes one experience that seems to highlight this divide. She explains that one day while she was doing her work in the Jonestown office, Jim Jones's wife, Marceline Jones, comes by and asks to speak with her in the hallway. Out in the hallway, she saw a young white woman with Marceline, and Marceline said to Leslie, Pam just got here, and she burns in the sun, so we're going to give her a day in the office and you another day out in the field. When Leslie said that she burned too, that, you know, just because she was Black didn't mean she didn't burn, Marceline ordered her to stop being insubordinate. From that moment forward, Leslie started deeply analyzing the goings-on around her. Jim would talk equality, Leslie said, but there was none in People's Temple. And for those like Leslie Wagner-Wilson who wanted to leave, this wasn't an option. According to PBS, folks who spoke negatively about Jonestown were seen as insubordinate. 
People who shared an inkling, a desire to leave, would face criticism, humiliation, and punishment. These negative, scary experiences were real, but at the same time, it seemed that at least some people did deeply enjoy their lives in Jonestown. Fielding McGee of the Jonestown Institute write that audio tapes of the community made of its own meetings reveal a sense of camaraderie, laughter, good times, and high purpose. As I discovered in many of the first-person accounts I read for this episode, some community members felt deeply connected to one another and the work they were doing. Many of the stories that came out of Jonestown were deeply disturbing, but it's also important to remember that many who chose to leave the States and head to Guyana came with their whole families. They were joined by siblings, parents, children, grandparents. Jonestown gave hope that they could escape from the guaranteed racism, classism, and oppression of the U.S., Jonestown offered the hope of generational change. As Phil Blakely would write in an essay entitled Snapshots from a Jonestown Life, quote, In the early days of Jonestown, everybody was enthusiastic, full of hope for a new beginning. But for all the excitement early on, it seemed as though Jim Jones's arrival in Jonestown marked a turning point. Like I mentioned earlier, a mass migration had not been the plan, and this choice to suddenly send a thousand people to Guyana? Well, according to the Jonestown Institute, Quote, in a way, they, the temple, never recovered from that decision. There was never enough housing, there was never enough food, and the efforts to make themselves self-sustaining were frustrating and exhausting. A big point here really stands out in hindsight. Jones's so-called white knights. During these meetings, Jones would talk about the impending attacks from outside forces who wanted to destroy Jonestown and People's Temple. And when these attacks came, Jones explained, the community would have only three choices— flee to the Soviet Union, fight to the death, or commit revolutionary suicide. The last of these choices, revolutionary suicide, was a term Jones took from Black Panther leader Huey Newton. Newton had coined the phrase in a completely different context to describe what often seemed like the inevitability of death when fighting against the government for Black liberation. According to the Jonestown Institute, this would be one of the many times that Jones would appropriate from Black leftists to take advantage of those in his congregation. During these white nights, Jones would sometimes force members to arm themselves with weapons and tools, making them stay up for days awaiting the impending attack. On other occasions, according to PBS, he would pass out punch and ask everyone to drink it. Once they had, he'd announce that their drinks had been poisoned and that they'd all die together. Then he'd say, oh, it wasn't true. It had all been a loyalty test to see if they were really committed. And this trust in Jones, in the mission of Jonestown, it wasn't earned overnight. It had been earned over a long, long period of time. And for many, the negative aspects of community life had to be weighed alongside the good that they believed was possible when a group of like-minded and intelligent individuals were fighting together for the common purpose of justice and equality. And Jones would be able to use that to his advantage, to slowly wield more and more power over time, and to control the narrative of People's Temple. In this clip, Jones can be heard instructing members on the best way to respond to questions from the media. When you refer to Jonestown, how do you refer to it? I refer to Jonestown as a, uh, a, very, a very nice place. Um, the, the, I refer to it as a very nice place. Uh, equality, people get along real, real well. Uh, there's no crimes or anything that I know of. Uh, people they get along with white and black all together. And uh, I mean, being equal. And uh, treating anyone right and helping each other in, 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 in any best way that they can. You know how? Good enough. I'd say it's a community. That's what I was after. Jonestown's a community. To speak of Jonestown's a community, not the family. But that's good. You gave good, good response. Next. 
back in the States, some of the family members of those in Guyana were done with Jim Jones. They felt People's Temple wasn't what it promised to be. And so they formed a coalition, naming it the Concerned Relatives Organization. They began taking action in the hopes of protecting their loved ones. They protested with signs that said things like, free our families and I want my son, according to video footage in a PBS documentary. And it wasn't long before the concerned families got the attention of California Congressman Leo Ryan. And Congressman Ryan was known to be quite the unusual politician. Once, while sitting on a committee investigating prison reform, he, quote, anonymously had himself admitted as an inmate to Folsom Prison for 10 days, according to PBS. And while some would criticize Ryan for what they felt was clearly a publicity stunt, it certainly set him apart from many of the politicians he worked alongside. And so Congressman Ryan, concerned about the claims regarding Jonestown, decided he would head to Guyana in November of 1978 on a fact-finding mission. According to the Jonestown Institute, Ryan would arrive in Guyana with two congressional staff members, Jackie Speer and Dame Scholler. In addition to these three, nine members of the news media would also travel with Ryan, figuring that the congressman's trip would provide a rare opportunity to report on the elusive Jonestown. Jim Jones was not happy to hear about Congressman Ryan's intended arrival, and it's widely speculated that Jones saw this visit from the U.S. government as an attack on Jonestown. And while the congressman would eventually be granted entry into the site, Jones still intended to prepare members by instructing them to deny Ryan and his group any and all information about their lives in Jonestown. Here's Jones in one recording from the days leading up to Ryan's visit. By the way, we may have a a group of bad relatives who are working with a conspiracy of which you refuse to speak to if one of you, if one of them come with this right-wing, birchite, anti-black congressman, you are to refuse to speak to them. Tell them you will not see them and refuse to see them. That should be your pledge now, and you should put it in writing. Have it circulated throughout the whole meeting. His name is Congressman Ryan. According to PBS, Ryan and his group entered Jonestown on November 17th of 1978. And when Ryan arrived, it seemed that his first reaction was similar to that of many others first stepping foot into Jonestown. Amazement at the infrastructure they had built in the middle of the jungle. Ryan and a few of the journalists would eventually begin speaking to the members, asking them about their experience and whether they wanted to leave. And the response, it was overwhelmingly positive, with folks expressing how happy they were with their lives in Jonestown, according to ABC. That evening, the members hosted what seemed like a joyful gathering at the pavilion, full of music and singing and dancing. At one point, Congressman Ryan would even address the members, expressing his happiness to join them and affirming the positive reports he had heard throughout the day. I'm very very glad to be here. Uh, I already have met a former student of mine. I've already met a former classmate of one of my daughters at the Mills High School in Burlingame. Uh, Many of you, I discover, are from my own area and my own congressional district, as a matter of fact, in San Mateo County. So we are at least uh, friends in that, that extent. I'm very glad to be here. This is a congressional inquiry, and I think that all of you know that I'm here to find out more about uh, questions that have been raised about your operation here. But I can tell you right now that from the few conversations I've had with some of the folks here already this evening, that uh, whatever the comments are, there are some people who never had them in their whole life. After that kind of response, I, I feel terrible that you can't all register to vote in San Mateo County. <laughs> I know that the last bit of that clip is a bit difficult to make out, but according to transcripts from the Jonestown Institute, 
What Congressman Ryan says as the tape breaks out is, I can tell you right now that from the few conversations that I've had with some of the folks here already this evening, that uh, whatever the comments are, there are some people here who believe this is the best thing that ever happened to them in their whole life. Being met with cheers and clapping, Ryan joked, After that kind of response, I feel terrible that you can't all register to vote in San Mateo County. What this tape really makes clear to me is that as the night started to draw to a close, it seemed that maybe everything was well. That is, until a People's Temple member approached one of the journalists and slipped him a note. The note, which read, Please help us get out of Jonestown, according to the AP, would ultimately be the first in a series of things that would change the entire direction of the visit. Overnight and into the next day, word of the note began to spread among members, and now things were escalating. Once Ryan returned to Jonestown on November 18th and confronted Jones, more members came forward and told Ryan's delegation that they too wanted out of Jonestown. Ultimately, according to the Jonestown Institute, 16 People's Temple members would make the decision to leave Jonestown alongside the congressman. According to PBS, tensions at this point were incredibly high. The environment was an explosion of emotions as some families disagreed with the decision of whether or not to leave, and some saw the decision by some to defect as a betrayal of the community. And these folks wouldn't leave without an issue. In a flurry of commotion, a People's Temple member tried to attack Congressman Ryan with a knife. Thankfully, others nearby were able to stop the attack. And it's at that point that Ryan's delegation made a decision to immediately leave the site and head out to Port Katuma Airstrip, where they planned to take two small planes to leave Guyana. But according to ABC, as the group boarded the plane, a group of men from Jones's security force pulls up in a tractor trailer. Pulling out their guns, they open fire on the group even shooting several people at point-blank range. Congressman Leo Ryan, NBC correspondent Don Harris, NBC cameraman Bob Brown, and San Francisco examiner photographer Greg Robinson would all lose their lives in the attack. Twelve others would be gravely injured. Back at Jonestown, an announcement is made over the loudspeakers for everyone to head to the pavilion, where armed guards stood surrounding the area. Jones's intent would become clear in a chilling audio recording of the meeting where he can be heard saying, The congressman's dead. The congressman is dead. Many of our traders are dead. They're all lying out there dead. Do you think they're going to allow us to get away with this? There's no way. No way we can survive. It's not worth living like this. A vat of cyanide and flavorade, a British knockoff of the popular Kool-Aid brand, was brought forward and Jim Jones instructed members to give the drink first to the babies, children, and elderly. On the tape, one woman can be heard arguing with Jones, asking if there might be another option, whether there might still be time to flee to the Soviet Union, that she wasn't ready to die, that the children shouldn't die. Jim Jones would argue back and forth with her until she finally stopped, saying, that's all I've got to say, according to transcripts from the Jonestown Institute. What happened next, no one will ever know for sure. But firsthand narratives like those found on the Jonestown Institute website reveal that while some drank the punch at Jones's command, others believe that some members may have been forcibly injected with the poison, pointing to the puncture wounds later found on the backs of some of the deceased. Others still would say that members drank the cyanide only after the squirting of poison into the mouths of children left them without the will to live. According to a demographic study by San Diego State University professor Rebecca Moore, by the time evening fell over Guyana, 918 people had lost their lives in the massacre. 908 at the Jonestown site, five at the Port Katuma airstrip, 
and four who died at the People's Temple site in the capital of Guyana after receiving revolutionary suicide orders from Jim Jones. Of those who died, 70% were Black, 50% were Black women, and a third were children. Jim Jones would be found dead with a bullet wound to his head. The question of whether he was murdered or committed suicide remains unknown to this day. According to The Guardian, the mass death would be the largest single incident of intentional civilian death in American history until September 11th of 2001. But despite the significance of an event so large and so traumatic, the U.S. government would never really conduct a full investigation of the deaths. Autopsies would only be conducted on seven of the 918 bodies. And even those provided little new information as the bodies were badly decomposed by the time autopsies were completed over a month later. Rebecca Moore, a professor of religious studies at San Diego State University and sister to two women who lost their lives in Jonestown, would write in a 1988 essay titled Last Rites that, quote, The Carter administration characterized the suicides as an aberration lacking relevance to American society. As a result, the government agencies responsible for handling the bodies resolved the problems they presented by ignoring routine investigative procedures. They simply abandoned civilized treatment of the dead. Instead of coordinating to send the bodies back to living family members, the U.S. government first tried to have the bodies buried in Guyana. And when that failed, they were instead transported to Dover Air Force Base in Delaware, thousands of miles away from where most of the surviving families lived. According to Fielding McGee of the Jonestown Institute, quote, most of the bodies received nothing more than a cursory identification if ID was possible, and families notified to make arrangements for disposal. Many bodies, especially those of the children, were never identified, and some family members were too poor to claim their relatives' remains. And the more and more I read, it all pointed to the gut-wrenching truth. According to the Jonestown Institute, quote, the full truth about what exactly happened in Jonestown on November 18, 1978 is not known. Was it suicide? Certainly, we cannot say that the children who died that day committed suicide. Was it murder? Were people forced at gunpoint to drink the liquid? Some argue that Jonestown was a CIA mind control experiment. Others claim that the U.S. government could not tolerate an interracial and socialist group of expatriate Americans to survive, and so they murdered them. Still others believe that repeated suicide rehearsals had prepared the group to die. There are many theories, none of which have been answered by any federal investigations. And the lack of a thorough investigation wouldn't be the only shameful act from the U.S. government. Rather than preserving the Jonestown site for memoriam or creating a memorial in the states, as the government has done in the case of other mass deaths, the Jonestown site was eventually left abandoned. Jeff Gwynn would write in his book, The Bitter Cup, The Life and Times of Jim Jones, People's Temple, and Jonestown, that the site is almost completely overgrown now. The road has been smothered again with trees and vines and thorn bushes. And according to Erica Mailman writing for Rolling Stone, it'd be 30 years before a full memorial with the names of the victims would be erected in the U.S. And this would only come after Jonestown survivors and other living family members organized their own fundraising effort. And maybe all of this was foreshadowing the fate of our collective memories of Jonestown. Even though People's Temple and Jonestown itself were known to be predominantly Black, race has become an almost completely forgotten feature of the tragedy. Accounts from survivors are overwhelmingly white, and many popular sources I found online relegated the mentions of race to a passing sentence or two, if it's even mentioned at all. But not everything about Jonestown has faded from the public's memory. 
an unfortunately popular turn of phrase, don't drink the Kool-Aid, which is typically used to joke about or criticize uninformed or unwarranted loyalty, has been used everywhere from Capitol Hill to sports stadiums to corporate offices. And it seems to be the most pervasive relic of Jonestown left in American culture. The loss of over 900 people who were deeply loved, minimized to a joke. I wondered if the folks of People's Temple hadn't been overwhelmingly Black, socialist, rejecting of what's considered American, whether things might be remembered quite differently. But it wasn't just those who died whose experiences and trauma were minimized. According to the Jonestown Institute, of the 1,001 members of People's Temple that woke up in or near Guyana on November 18, 1978, only 87 would live to see the next day. A group of 11 who had fled that very morning pretending to go on a picnic. A small handful who escaped into the jungle, played dead, or never left their beds to come to the pavilion. 16 defectors who survived the attack at the airstrip. Several who were dispatched from Jonestown to complete various tasks. And a larger group who had been staying at People's Temple site Lamaha Gardens in the capital of Guyana. Of the 87 who survived, nearly all lost multiple family members and friends. Just over 40 years later, many who lived still talk about the scars left from Jonestown and the alienation and erasure they experienced once returning to the States. One survivor, Eugene Smith, would write in 2018 for the Jonestown Institute, None of us survived Jonestown. None of us. Because the world ended on that day. What we did survive was returning to the United States and being criticized for 40 years, getting a job, restarting a family, being an asset to society, helping children, joining community organizations, fighting individually for civil rights for all. We are alive, but we did not survive. As I read Smith's words, I was hit by just how easy it is for those of us hearing these stories to forget that these characters we hear about aren't characters at all, but instead real people who deserve to be seen in all of their nuance. At the start of this story, I told you about the daydream I had while looking at a scanned copy of an investigative magazine piece written about People's Temple. I said that had I been born in the golden age of print, perhaps I would have walked into a store in 1977 and plucked the magazine from a shelf. Thinking about that now, I noticed how even in the daydream, I had painted myself as the observing party, the kind of person who reads about tragedy, not the kind of person it happens to. But the truth is, Bad things can happen to all of us. And maybe if I had been born years earlier during the height of Vietnam, or maybe if I had lived through the assassinations of leaders like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, maybe if I had been alive in the 70s and had the kind of commitment to justice, equity, and community care that so many of the folks in Jonestown had, well, then maybe I would have been drawn to People's Temple too. As Jonestown survivor, Mike Carter would write in his heart-wrenchingly honest piece, Drinking the Kool-Aid, I have had the good fortune to meet a number of wonderful people during my lifetime, but I have never encountered such a concentration of outstanding human beings as I did in People's Temple. It is easy for people to believe that we were mindless and spineless, but nothing could be further from the truth. I can only speak for myself. I guess I am still finding ways to survive, to handle the challenges of life that come my way. In the end, that doesn't make me or any of the survivors much different than anyone else. There's something else I think it's really important for you to know. During my research for today's episode, I was really moved by the piece Not Surviving Jonestown, written by survivor Eugene Smith. 
You can find the full piece on the website Alternative Considerations of Jonestown and People's Temple at jonestown.sdsu.edu. In it, Smith writes the following. The media wants our story every year or so, especially on the anniversaries. They ask sometimes, they demand at other times. They want the story not yet told so that they can get their hands on it before any other media outlet does. Never do they ask, how can I help you for sharing this? How are you doing? Smith makes a critical point that I want to highlight as we close out today's episode. With any story we tell on truer crime, including the story of Jonestown, we need to make sure we're doing our best to uplift those folks who are most directly impacted. To achieve this goal, we were able to find the contact information of a few survivors who graciously offered us insight into how we, as members of the truer crime community, can directly extend our support to victims and survivors of Jonestown. First, Jonestown survivor Herbert Newell told us he is currently working on a book about his experiences, and financial contributions can help make this work possible. You can send contributions directly to Mr. Newell via his cash app. Um, He gave us his cash tag, and it is a series of numbers, which I'm going to read now, and his name should pop up when you type it into the cash app so you know you have the right person. Um, So his cash tag is 1118197. And then the letter F. Another survivor who asked to remain anonymous um, responded to us, and they would like listeners to direct their support in two ways. First, they asked if you could please send funds to the Jonestown Memorial at jonestownmemorial.com. These funds will help offset the cost of the cemetery in Oakland, where most of the victims of the Jonestown tragedy are buried. You can send your donations by mail to Jonestown Memorial P.O. Box 2722, Oakland, California, 94602. That's the zip code. The second action item mentioned by the survivor that gave us the resource above also asked if you might direct your support towards the Black Lives Matter movement and related efforts. They mentioned that despite how everything ended in Jonestown, People's Temple was an activist organization and it would have been very, very active in the Black Lives Matter movement. Supporting BLM and related efforts towards the liberation of Black people is an important way that you can honor the work and the dedication of both victims and survivors. I also want you to look at two other websites. First is the Jonestown Memorial List, and that's available on the website Alternative Considerations of Jonestown and People's Temple that we referenced earlier. Again, that website is jonestown.sdsu.edu. Here, you're actually able to find a complete list of all the folks who died in Guyana on November 18, 1978, along with their photos, names, lists of their family members, and remembrances by their family and friends. I encourage you to spend some time reading about these folks as a way to honor them and keep their memory alive. And then also, I would encourage you to check out a website called blackjonestown.org. This website is known as the first website devoted to uplifting the voices, experiences, and social history of African-American People's Temple and Jonestown members, victims, and survivors. Here you'll find tons of articles and videos to further learn about Jonestown and People's Temple, with special attention to the perspectives of Black women survivors. I want to also extend a special thank you to all of the survivors who have bravely shared their stories over the years. These stories were absolutely central to my research and writing, and there would be no episode without the courage of these survivors. Finally, I want to highlight a few resources in particular that were absolutely instrumental in the creation of today's episode. First was the Jonestown Institute and the website Alternative Considerations of Jonestown and People's Temple, which is sponsored by the Special Collections of Library and Information Access at San Diego State University. It was here that I found all of the audio for today's episode, 
as well as all of the first-person narrative essays, a general overview of information, and a plethora of other primary and secondary sources. And you can check that out at jonestown.sdsu.edu. And I really, really encourage you to go to this site. I mean, anything that you could possibly want to know about Jonestown exists on this site. And just the the number of first-person narratives they have is absolutely incredible. And then the other resource that we really use a lot in the creation of this episode is the PBS documentary Jonestown, The Life and Death of the People's Temple. This documentary featured interviews with historians, survivors, and other people with firsthand experience with Jonestown and People's Temple. And then finally, I recommend the YouTube miniseries No Church in the Wild by Anansi Mines, which tells the story of Jonestown survivor Leslie Wagner Wilson. Black women were by far the greatest percentage of those who died in Jonestown, and we have relatively few firsthand accounts from Black women survivors. So that made this source so, so important in the research. And this series is just also just really well produced, um, and I highly recommend giving it a watch. You can find all of these resources, of course, as well as my complete source list in the show notes for today's episode, which are available at truercrimepodcast.com. That was Truer Crime with Celicia Stanton. Celicia is a photographer, a writer, and a podcaster who's based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You may remember her from our episode Behind the Scammer, but Truer Crime is her own podcast. Go find it wherever you listen to podcasts, rate it, review it, subscribe, all of that stuff. We will see you back here at Terrible Thanks for Asking very soon.